And our sermon text this morning as we're working our way through the epistles of Peter is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is God's word to you. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And as we come to its proclamation now, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and eyes to see Jesus, that your spirit would move upon the hearts of your people to strengthen their faith, to build them up and to conform them and transform them evermore into the image of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, your son. And Father, we pray if there are any that know you not, that you would give them that understanding so that they might believe and trust Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, as we read these words of Peter, I can't help but wonder if Jesus' words to him and the other disciples in Matthew 16 were going through his mind. There, Jesus tells his disciples that Jesus would build his church and the very gates of hell would not prevail against it. And the idea being that the church would overcome, the church of Jesus Christ would overcome every obstacle, all opposition for the kingdom of Christ would grow as God had promised that it would. The church would be on the offensive, bringing the gospel to the world and the kingdom of heaven would invade the kingdom of darkness. But as wonderfully true as those words from Jesus are, oftentimes the reality on the ground feels far removed from that victory that Jesus promised. And Peter's first readers, his original audience, certainly felt the darkness of the world pushing harder and harder against them. The hostility towards God's people was growing. Uh, People were being pressured to abandon their faith. And soon, as we'll see in Peter, he says soon the fiery trial would come and they should not be surprised by that. And so we ask the question, then, how is any of that overcoming the gates of hell? Because no doubt we ask that same question even today. It feels like there's so much wrong and evil in this world and that the righteousness and truth of God is being suppressed and pushed down. It feels like the church is many times failing in her mission to make disciples of all nations for a variety of reasons. And it feels like the kingdom of this world is winning, but we know it is not. It's not because God is blessing his church or he in blessing his church, he is blessing 
the world. We know that the world is not winning because even though that there's a shadow of darkness and sin sometimes does seem to loom large, it cannot and will not ever extinguish the unchanging light of Christ shining forth from his people. You see, by simply being the church, being who God has made us and called us to be, we overcome the world. That is what Peter is getting at here in these verses. As God shapes and fashions us into who we are as his people, his covenant people, he indeed is tearing down the very gates of hell. And he continues that work of building the kingdom which Jesus started. And he does that simply by making us who we are. And the first thing we see in this text that as the church who we are is a refuge for the weary. He says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now these words in verse 8, they are actually a series of adjectives here, and there's a, an implied imperative. And so he's describing the quality or the characteristics of who we are as God's people and who we ought to be as God's people. And they're laid out in a very intentional way so that you can see uh, the center here governs all the other characteristics, and that center being brotherly love. So Peter says, have brotherly love. That is to say, family love. Love for brothers and sisters. This was a term, this idea of brotherly love that that shows up in other Greek literature to speak of kinship and family obligations. Which makes sense because as we've observed the past few weeks here, Peter has been laying out a Christian household code, how believers are to live their lives in this world for the glory of God and the good of their neighbors. And this is the conclusion of that household code. That's why he says, finally, all of you. Now, you notice it's not the end of his letter. He goes on for two more chapters. But the finally is the end of his household code. And it's it's interesting because he's addressing all of the church here. He's addressing people who are not typically members of a Greco-Roman household. Now, so far, Peter's followed the typical format of one of these household codes. He's mentioned all the positions and roles that were common in the the household and socioeconomic structure of his day. Uh, And he gave instructions to all of them on how they ought to conduct their lives in a way that honored God and disarmed the hostility of unbelievers. He's, He's addressed servants or slaves and wives and husbands. But now he includes this one final word, a set of final instructions in this code of conduct for all of God's people. And you don't see that kind of instruction anywhere in any of the secular writing of his day. And that's remarkable. And what's so remarkable about it is what he is trying to communicate to the church. And that is this, is that you are part of a new and better family. If you are redeemed by God's grace, you are part of the household of God. And that far exceeds flesh and blood family. I mean, imagine if you were 
one of the slaves that Peter wrote to initially here. And you are a believer. And he mentions back in verse 18 of chapter 2. And you're suffering unjustly under the hand of a cruel master. Not because you've done anything wrong or sinful, but simply because you are a follower of Jesus. And that household that you've been serving faithfully, now you are feeling the, the anger and hostility and suffering from your master. Peter says, you are part of a better family. Even as you suffer, you are part of something greater. You are part of a group of people who are your brothers and sisters who love you. Where instead of hate, you experience love. Where you are valued as, a, as an equal. Where you are dignified as an image bearer of God. And that is fully realized in your life. Or imagine if you were one of the Christian wives that he spoke of at the beginning of chapter 3, and you had an unbelieving husband, which meant there was the very real possibility you could be cast from the household. Because it was expected that in a Greco-Roman house, you would take up the religion, the faith of your husband. But you had found the truth of Christ, and your husband had not yet. And there was that fear, that danger that was there, Peter's words are meant to give you encouragement. You will not be abandoned. You belong to a better household, a family that will care for you and meet your needs and be there for you if you suffer that fate. In other words, what he's saying here is the church, as the household of God, is to be a refuge for the weary, for the weak, for those who are struggling, to be a shelter a harbor from the hostility of this world. And if it's to be a refuge, it is because it is different. That difference is the brotherly love that he talks about here. Brotherly love that is reflected in the gospel birth and driven qualities that he lists in verse 8. So these characteristics in verse 8, they, they form a sort of parallelism. In Hebrew, or in Hebrew, at least, poetry often follows this parallel structure. And, and Peter, being a, a Jewish man, understood this. And oftentimes, even in New Testament writings, you will find this parallelism. And it, it shows up here. And so we'll look at these in that order. But again, this idea of brotherly love, of belonging to the household of God, that is the center that governs all of these qualities. And what we see then is the two on the outside have to do with the mind. He says, have unity of mind and have a humble mind. And then the two in the center have to do with the heart. He speaks of having sympathy and a tender heart. So first, unity or harmony. It's unity or harmony is is not unanimity. It's Peter isn't saying that all God's people must agree on every little thing. But unity is a like-mindedness of faith, a unity of faith, an agreement that is centered on the essential of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I really do like the translation harmony uh, better. You see that in some English versions over unity for the simple reason that I think harmony really reflects what Peter is trying to get at here when he calls us to unity. Because if you know music, and some of you do, 
you understand that harmony is different notes, right, that are playing together in a chord to make a pleasing sound. And that's the idea here. Different notes or different people all coming together, blending together, and that are drawn together by the grace of God. That is what the church is. That is what it is to be. Different people brought together by God's grace to accomplish his purposes in the world. Unity of mind or harmony It goes back really to this biblical idea of submission that Peter has been talking about all through this household code. Because to have this unity, there must be a submission to one another as God's covenant people. And that is why we recognize from the New Testament that church membership is important. It is a vow of faith in the grace of God to unite myself with God's covenant people for their benefit and for God's glory. And to have unity, then, there must be an authority over us. That authority ultimately is Christ as as the head of his church, and that authority comes down through his church on the whole. We are submitting to each other. One of the things that teaching elders or pastors in our denomination, the PCA, do, and ruling elders as well, is we take a vow, an ordination vow, where we promise to submit ourselves to our brethren, to put ourselves under them. So you have everybody submitting to one another under Christ, who is our head. And so... This is why, then, we speak of things like apostolic doctrine or the doctrine of the apostles. We understand uh, that there is an authority that comes down from Christ through his church. It's also why we have things like creeds and confessions handed down to us through the centuries where the church has sought to clarify and express clearly the truth of God's word. And we accept those uh, as an authority Not a perfect authority, but a lesser authority under Christ, who is our perfect head. Now, that coming together in one faith and submitting to the authority of the church together, as we come together as his people uh, with one doctrine that is the gospel of Christ, to do that, we must have this other thing Peter talks about in our mind, that is humility. It requires humility. Peter says to be of a humble mind. So to have unity or harmony, we must be willing to set aside then our our preferences and our non-essential differences and come together in love, not assuming that our thoughts are greater than the whole. So when the church speaks as the body of Christ led by the Spirit of God, we are willing to humbly listen to what God is saying to us. And that does create a refuge from the noise of this world, especially in the age we live in, because we live in an age of excessive, expressive individualism. A life's purpose and happiness is entirely wrapped up in oneself. I am the most important person in my life and what I think and how I feel are my creed and confession. That is the religion of the day. But the trouble with this religion of self 
is the final outcome. Because ultimately, it leads to the inescapable reality of pain and suffering and ultimately death as the consequence of sin. It can't lead to anything else. It never will. I mean, if I am pursuing what is best for me, eventually that's going to come into conflict with your pursuit of what is best for you. And from that comes hurt and pain and anger and conflict and broken relationships and all sorts of sinful actions. And as the scriptures tell us, the wages of sin is death. And so this religion of self is really a religion of death. There's no refuge. There's no hope in that. And you cannot escape that end. But when you come to Christ in faith and he adopts you into the family of God, into this covenant community of God's people, there is real life because the God of life dwells with us. And so we strive in faith for that unity and that humility of mind so that we might make the church this place of refuge that which God has called us to be and raised us to be. And what a hope it gives to the weariness of this hyper-individualized world. Peter also speaks here of having sympathy in our hearts. Sympathy, of course, is an an awareness of needs of others, their, their struggles, their pains. It's living in an understanding way with what others are actually experiencing in this world and then trying to help them through that Paul gives us an example of what godly gospel-produced sympathy is to look like in Romans 12 when he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's that simple. We celebrate with our brethren when they're experiencing blessing and we cry with them and seek to comfort them when they are suffering. And commenting on sympathy here, Kelvin says that sympathy extends to all our faculties with, when concord exists between us so that everyone condoles with us in adversity as well as rejoices with us in prosperity so that everyone not only cares for himself but also regards the benefit of others. That truly is a place of refuge. And you couple that sympathy with this idea of a tender heart or tender heartedness that Peter speaks of. In fact, that idea of tender heartedness, it's it's so closely tied to sympathy that it almost seems indistinguishable from it. A tender heart is, is a soft heart that is not callous towards the suffering and the burdens of others, but is genuinely interested in their well-being. Again, this is very much the opposite of what the kingdom of this world offers us. For in the world, compassion is is not directed toward all, but chiefly towards those who are like me, who I agree with, who are part of my tribe. Or worse, compassion or tenderheartedness is used as a tool to advance my own benefits and status. But it is never really truly interested in the well-being of others. Appearing to be compassionate in order to, to gain advantage or power, it's, it's nothing short than abusing those who need genuine love and mercy. 
But in God's covenant community, things are supposed to be different, and indeed they are when we submit ourselves to Christ and his gospel. And it isn't to say that we as believers, as the church, are perfect in all of these qualities. We're not. We know that. But we strive for it through the power of the Spirit to make this place a refuge for the weary that are burdened from the cares of this world. And the church, when she embraces who she truly is in Christ Jesus, she does become a place of shelter from pain and suffering and hurt caused by this sin-cursed world. And these qualities, they are, they are a reflection of more to come. Because we know they're not perfect, but we know one day they will be as Christ is sanctifying us together as his people. And when he finally realizes that goal and brings to completion our salvation, then will be that day of which Isaiah prophesied where death will be swallowed up forever and God will wipe away every tear from all faces. And the church of God will be that perfect refuge that God is making it. You see, hell's gates are already broken before the feet of Christ. And he's continuing to build his kingdom and transform his people into this haven, this refuge for the weary and for the, a home for the wanderer and a, a place where those who were once lost can now be found as the church is a refuge for the weary. Secondly, Peter talks about here the church being a blessing to the world. Whereas verse 8 speaks of the relationship of believers to each other within the church, verse 9 speaks of the church's response to the world. And so he says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So in the church, Peter says, have brotherly love. And to those outside the church, he says, do not repay the evil they commit against you with evil, but instead, bless. Now, where have we heard this language before? Well, we read it just recently back in chapter 2, where speaking of Jesus, Peter says this in, in 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, when he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. And so Peter is once again calling us to the example of Christ. When Jesus was verbally abused, he did not respond in kind. In, in the world of uh, the New Testament, where Peter was writing, this was a, an honor and shame society. And people would use words as weapons as an effective way of bringing public shame and scandal upon a person. And so the expectancy of that culture is if you are assaulted verbally, or if you are reviled publicly, you are to respond in kind with equal hate, equal vitriol, as a way to defend your own public honor. And if you didn't, well, boy, shame on you. 
Well, Jesus, though, he doesn't respond when he's on the cross being mocked and ridiculed. He bears the shame of that cross and he entrusts himself to the will of the Father so that he might secure redemption for all who would come to him in faith. In other words, by not responding to evil with evil, Jesus brought the blessing of God, the blessing of his grace to this world. And we who know him, we are healed by his wounds. And now, following the pattern of Jesus laid out for us as his people, we are to do the same. We bless the world by not responding to the evil of the world with evil. Remember the people who comprised Peter's original audience. They were certainly needing some encouragement to live faithfully for Christ in the midst of a hostile society. Evil was being spoken of them regularly. They were being mistreated and they were suffering for it. They were being shamed publicly. And yet their response to the world was not to retaliate against that in anger, but to bless And what does it mean to bless? Well, literally, it means to invoke the favor of God upon another. Now think about that. They are being mocked. They are being ridiculed. They are being publicly shamed. And yet the church is called to bless, to invoke God's grace upon those committing this evil against them. How does God show his favor to people? Well, specifically, he shows it through Christ, through the good news of the gospel. And so then this call to bless instead of to curse is to respond to the evil with the good news of the gospel. It's to respond to all that hatred by pointing people to the cross of Christ and calling them in faith and repentance to him. It's to fulfill our mission that he has given us. In fact, Peter says to this, you are called. You as the church, you as God people are called to bless even those who hate you. And you show that love and that mercy and that patience calling the unbelieving world to come and know the refuge that you already know found in the mercy of Christ. You see, this great commission that we've been given to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that Christ has commanded, that great commission is a great benediction, a great blessing. It is God's blessing to the world through his church, to bring salvation to many. That benediction, that blessing, we as God's covenant people bring results in our blessing as well. Peter says here, bless, for this you've been called, that's your mission, bless so that you may obtain a blessing. What he's talking about there is the final fulfillment of God's promised salvation. And here's how this works. You see, we know, we understand that, that sin does remain on this earth, but we also know that Christ is still building his kingdom. Jesus didn't stop his work when he ascended to the Father. Instead, he carries it out 
in his people through the power of the Spirit as we go forth proclaiming the gospel until he comes again. And he will come again when that final, very last person of God's elect believe. And so by fulfilling our mission, by being that blessing, by proclaiming the light of the gospel to the world, we are furthering our own blessing, that final moment when we will fully realize our salvation and the presence of sin will be eliminated and we will be like Christ for all eternity. And so Peter says the church is a blessing to the world when it fulfills its mission. And he proves this by quoting from Psalm 33 and doing so, showing us that the church truly is this means of fulfillment of all God's covenant promises. He says here, verses 10 through 12, for whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a near verbatim quote of Psalm 33 in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. And in fact, throughout this letter of 1 Peter, we, we see Peter alluding to Psalm 33 often. And he does that because by going back to the Old Testament, he is tying the church with the uh, Old Testament community of God's people, the Old Testament covenant community. And he does that to show a continuity. You see, there's only ever been one people of God. There's only one gospel One faith. And God's people are those who have always rested in his promises of grace towards them. Those who trust his mercy and kindness. And in the Old Testament, that was mainly found in the people of Israel. But now with the coming of Christ, we see that promised expansion of his covenant promises being fulfilled as people from all nations are brought into the kingdom of God. So it is very fitting then that Peter would quote from Psalm 33 as the proof for his instructions to not repay the hostility of the world in kind, but instead to bless it through the grace of the gospel. And we find in these words of Psalm 33 very similar instructions to what Peter gives here in his letter to the church. Because there the psalmist wrote, keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking deceit. What does that sound like? Exactly what Peter just said. Don't revile when you're reviled, but instead bless. And the blessing of Psalm 133 is said to, is to be the seeking of peace and to pursuing of that peace. Peace is the reconciliation with God that people need. It's the very point, the very heart of the gospel itself. Again, verse 12 reads, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord 
is against those who do evil. This expression concerning the eyes of the Lord is a, is a picture, again, of this idea of blessing, the blessing of his grace. It is God, the almighty king of all creation, looking favorably upon the righteous. That is to say, those who have been made right with him by his grace. And his ears, we are told, they, he hears their prayer. They can speak to him directly and petition him and carry their very burdens into his throne room because they've been reconciled to God. They've been made his people. They are now near to him. And that great blessing, of course, is possible all because of Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.20 that through Jesus, he reconciles all things to himself, that is God, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now that Jesus has ascended, he has tasked his very church to carry on that mission, that ministry of reconciliation. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He says, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people back into right relationship with God. That is making them righteous through the righteousness of Christ. And that, brethren, that is how the church will overcome the hostility of this world. Christ works through us as we obey his great commission to bring to the earth God's great benediction, the blessing of being reconciled to him. And so the church is a refuge for the weary, Reflect that then. Reflect that in your brotherly love for each other. Showing by example to the world what the covenant community of God is all about. Having that unity of mind, that sympathy, that tenderheartedness and humility that is yours in Christ. And the church is to be a blessing to the world because through it Jesus is continuing his great work of Redemption of reconciling people back to God. And so be that blessing that God has called you to be in word and in deed. And one day God's final blessing will descend and his presence will be with us fully in Christ our King when he returns. You see, as our society grows darker, let us not shrink back in fear, but with the courage of Christ, raise high the banner of the gospel and be the blessing that God has called us to be. For the great commission that we have been given as the church is God's great benediction to this world and the light will overcome the darkness. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the gospel that you have made known to us, that you have made us your people. And in making us your people, you have given us this task of proclaiming your truth to all nations, to all people, so that others might be redeemed as well and made right with God through Christ. 
you have given us this ministry of reconciliation. So, Father, help us to be that refuge that is caring and loving to one another as a family, as your household, as we look within. And as we look without, let us not respond to the evil that is directed our way, but to respond with the grace of the gospel in courage and in truth. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.